This is the Thrive Podcast with Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. And now, Pastor Fred Jeff Smith. Hello. Welcome to the latest edition of the Thrive Podcast with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. As we've said in the past, Thrive is our acronym. It stands for Transformative Thinking, Helps Ministry, Renewed Relationships, Invitation to Evangelism, Visionary Worship, and Excellence in Administration. I'm Fred Jeff Smith, pastor of Shiloh, and I'm very happy today uh, to be joined by uh, both my life partner and one of the partners in ministry here at Shiloh, Reverend Demetria Lavelle Jones-Smith, who is my wife, but also serves as Minister of Christian Education here at Shiloh. Demetria, welcome to the Thrive Podcast. I've been trying to get you on ever since we started the podcast, so I'm very happy to be able to have you here. Let's start with uh, simply asking you to share uh, a little bit about yourself. I know that uh, members of Shiloh who are listening to this will know who you are, but for those who are listening who may not be familiar, help us to understand a little bit more about who you are and your ministerial background. Who I am in my ministerial background? Um, well, prior to uh, acknowledging my call to ministry in 1996, I uh Completed a Bachelor's of Broadcast Journalism at the University of Missouri-Columbia School of Journalism, uh, Go Mizzou Tigers. (laughs) And uh, I served as a reporter, anchor, uh, producer for National Public Radio, NPR, then for NBC affiliates uh, in Missouri, and uh, that's in Kansas City, as well as in... um, Columbia, Missouri, and then I worked with Black Entertainment Television as the managing editor of children and entertainment, uh, children and uh, entertainment programming. So that was my background before ministry, and I acknowledged my call in 1996. Started seminary in 1997 at the Samuel DeWitt Proctor School of <laughs> Theology at Virginia Union. It's a strong union. It's a strong Those guys. union. Yes. That's right. We are a strong group. And uh, I uh, matriculated there in 1997, and um, after that, I was licensed by my home church at that time in Washington, D.C., uh, Dr. H. Beecher Hicks, uh, Jr. is my father in the ministry, Metropolitan Baptist, Metropolitan church. Baptist church in uh, Washington, D.C., uh, finished seminary and began my first full-time ministerial uh, position with the Trinity Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia, under the leadership of A. Lincoln James Jr., Dr. A. Lincoln James. Uh, and I was ordained there in 2000, and ever since then, just been working in churches in Virginia, in Missouri, and now in Louisiana, where I am serving uh, as Minister of Christian Education and, and enjoying uh, every day, uh, all the different things we do here at Shiloh and the people that we work with and the in- innovative ways that we're trying to uh, spread the gospel. I find the H. Beecher Hicks uh, connection interesting because H. Beecher Hicks has a relationship yes, uh, to does. Baton Rouge, Louisiana yes, and to does. the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. And I remember vividly as a child when H. Beecher Hicks preached here. Uh, I guess I was 12 or 13 years old at that time and to find out years later that uh, it was through his leadership and his ministry that you acknowledged your call. Uh, 
it's just interesting to me the connection uh, that exists there. As a woman minister mm. in the Deep South, in a Baptist uh, tradition and in a traditional Baptist church, can you share uh, your concerns and your hopes with regard to uh, the way that we as Baptists uh, respond to women preachers and women pastors. Mm. Um, I, I don't. I, I don't know that I would call them concerns as much as I would call them challenges. As we just talked, uh, spoke about. I acknowledge my call in Washington D.C. under the leadership of Dr. H. Beecher Hicks, uh, Jr. And Dr. Hicks was actually thrown out of the D.C. Baptist Convention. Oh. It must be some 35 years ago now because he licensed a woman. Mm -hmm. And so growing up in Kansas City, I did not go to a church that affirmed women. But as I felt God's call on my life and ended up in D.C., I was blessed to be in a place like Help that. us. You use the word affirmed for people who may not be familiar with that type of language. What do you mean by affirmed? They did not believe that women are called okay. to preaching ministry. I think that's a little bit more direct. Yeah. Right. So I grew up in a church that did not believe that women were called to preaching ministry. And I tell people all the time, I think it had I been male, you know, I probably could have would have been licensed as early as 18. But that was not the case there. Now, mm -hmm. they loved and nurtured me. They saw the gifts and talents that I had. Mm -hmm. But that just was not what that church did. And it's interesting because when I finally acknowledged my call to ministry and shared it with my parents, shared it with my grandparents, no one was surprised. <laughs> and they they overwhelmingly affirmed me, my family, and even the members of the church where I, um, where I grew up. Even the pastor that I had been baptized under and grew up, he supported me. He sent me money when I was in seminary uh, to, to help with my seminary journey. He made sure, um, along with family and friends, that I was able to go to, to Africa for a month as a theological study tour when I was in seminary. So they individually supported me. He, he even did so from the pulpit, acknowledging that I had acknowledged my call to ministry and had been licensed to preach by Dr. Hicks. But it was not one of those things where the, the climate was such that it, it, in any time soon that they were going to allow women to come into the pulpit. And so I, I know that, and, and still, that is the case at that church. And we're talking 1997, yes. 1998. 1997, so we're 98. 20 years ago. 20 years ago. Okay, fast forward 20 years later, and you're now serving. Uh, you are an ordained minister. You are seminary trained. You graduated with honors uh, from a theological seminary. In fact, you graduated with honors from every college that you ever attended. I love school. Uh, <laughs> I love learning. Uh, and yet you still run into this wall mm -hmm. within uh, the African-American Baptist uh, church where there is, if not pushback, there is certainly resistance mm -hmm. to women preachers. Can you share uh, your feelings about that with, without me trying to put feelings on Right, it? right. Uh, well, there there is a, a, a lot of resistance or pushback here in the Deep South that I did not experience 
as much in D.C. and Virginia. Not that it's not there, but I routinely was invited. I mean, I ran revivals, <laughs> you know. I was preaching all the time, and it wasn't just for a Women's Day uh, service or observance. Right. So there has been more of a pushback. There are a lot more um, female pastors where I was serving in ministry in D.C., Virginia, on the East Coast. Many more um, women who have actually been called to pastor. It's not um, an anomaly as much as it is down here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 sometimes, I, I'll be honest, it gets a little uh, restrictive um, because the preaching opportunities are limited in many ways, but also just the camaraderie mm-hmm. of, of women who... Um, are seminary trained, have that background, and who have a wider worldview of what not just women are capable of, but also of male clergy as well. And so um, sometimes it gets a little, um, you know, a little discouraging. But the reason I say challenge instead of concern, because uh, there's yet time for uh, people to come around, so to speak. And I truly believe that, as the Bible says, your gift you know, gifts make room for you. I believe that as people see the move of God in someone's life, whether it be preaching, teaching, or whatever, if they're truly attuned to the spirit, then they'll open their minds. And so um, I think while there may be less opportunity uh, here, the same spirit that was operative in D.C. and Virginia, the same spirit that was operative in Missouri when I went back and was overwhelmingly um, supported in ministry, that same spirit is here. And so, um, yes, it's challenging, but but things are changing even here. So that's a blessing. And, of course, Shiloh is a bastion. Uh, It's been how many years since your father? 32 years. 32 years. And so Shiloh has always been used to having powerful women in ministry. Um, And and your father... uh, made sure of that. Uh, he, he was open to that. And so, you know, Shiloh is a bastion. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, was 19, it was actually more than 32 years. It was 1984, uh, which mm-hmm. would be 34 years, mm-hmm. uh, when uh, Barbara Tillingsley, uh, Barbara Tinsley, that's her name, Barbara Tinsley, uh, acknowledged her call to the ministry, and uh, he... Uh, affirmed her, to use that term, he, he affirmed her and her calling. And uh, from that time forward, there have been any number of women uh, who have uh, acknowledged their call and have been ordained, and many of them have gone on to get their seminary education through the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. And <clears throat> for uh, Reverend Charles Smith, it was simply a matter of of acknowledging his humility in the face of God's call. Mm, uh, mm-hmm. uh, who, who am I to say who God can and cannot call? How can I stand in the way of, of God calling an individual uh, into the gospel ministry? And, and of course, there was pushback here also, uh, not within the church, but within uh, the larger uh, Baptist community. Uh, uh, but... He was oblivious to it, and, and he didn't give any any real credence to it. He simply did what he felt like the Lord had called him to do. And uh, one of the things that 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 is a basic tenet of the Baptist Church is the autonomy of the local church. Mm-hmm. And if we truly believe in autonomy, yes. then then we have to respect the right 
of every church to decide for itself. The fact that one church affirms women and another church does not does not mean that we have to fall out of fellowship with one another. Uh, but neither does it mean that the church that affirms should be overly concerned with the criticisms that come from those churches that don't affirm. Yes. I totally agree with that. Um, and I believe that it is incumbent upon those churches, Baptist churches, because we are autonomous, that would, that's what it means to be Baptist, who do affirm women to look for opportunities, um, not just to bring women to preach, but also um, in the advocacy role. And, and I think that's where the tension comes in, because as Baptists, we are locally autonomous, but yet we federate with uh districts, with state conventions, with national conventions. And if anything would be a challenge or concern, I think the fact that we keep taking time to talk about whether or not a woman should preach or a woman should pastor or a woman should teach, uh, I, I think it's taking uh, really time away from other things. I think we could be better served with doing some other things. I think it's duplicitous and hypocritical. If, if, if we affirm autonomy, then why, wh why is it necessary for an association or a state convention or a national convention to, to then have, have, to, have to have a, mm -hmm. a, a conversation about that? Every church is autonomous. Those churches that affirm, that's fine. Those churches that don't, that's fine too. But the fact that we constantly find the need to have to go back and rehave that discussion is troubling uh, to me, and I'm certain... Uh, as a woman preacher, as, as a woman theologian, is troubling to you also. Talk, talk to us about uh, your uh, love for education. I was talking about the fact that you've always graduated with honors and you threw in, I, I love school. You, you, <laughs> I you, do. <laughs> you, you, you are called to the gospel ministry, but you feel an acute call towards Christian education. Is that an accurate statement? Yes, it's an accurate statement. I... I I know that with the call to proclaim the gospel came the call to explain the gospel. And for me, that's what Christian education is about um, in a very general term is, is just I am excited about seeing people take hold of the word of God, take hold of scripture, and then find ways to apply it to their daily living. And so that teaching aspect, that, that education aspect is near and dear to my heart, not just in the local church uh, assembly, but particularly also in um, the theological education setting. Um, while I was still at Virginia Union, I was lucky enough to serve um, in a staff position with the consortium of theological schools that we were a part of um, as the Richmond Theological Consortium coordinator. And I coordinated, really, it was the social aspects um, and the worship aspects of keeping all of the campuses together and, and, and kind of have an opportunity to fellowship and facilitating learning between us. But um, that was my first foray into theological education mm -hmm. in a formal sense. And ever since then, I've just had the love of theological education. So that partnered with my own personal love of education just um, impressed upon me how important it is to have the opportunity for potential and current ministers to be able to learn uh, in a place that affirms the opportunity for questioning, 
for uh, delving deep, for going below the surface, and to sit under teachers, whether they be the same denomination or not, because Richmond Theological Consortium was Baptist and Presbyterian. Okay. So there were uh, um, at least two I'm denominations. I'm sure that made for very lively discussions. It did. It did because... Issues like predestination and... Yes. Uh, <laughs> things of that sort. But also the idea the that... Of, of, of Holy Communion and the Lord's Supper. Right. And things of that sort. Right. Yeah. But, but, but it, what it gave us an opportunity opportunity to do is to understand that as the wide body of Christ, um, there are some non-negotiables, you know, that we all agree on, but then there are other things that we have a difference on. And it, it really opened up this idea of ecumenism, mm -hmm. um, this, this, this idea of ecumenical worship and that we don't have to exactly think the same way on other things. In fact, our diversity and our difference to me is what makes the Christian body so exciting to me. And so learning from other denominations, seeing how we have differing point of view, um, about certain things, because that just gives us more opportunity to bring that diversity to work with spreading the gospel and also reaching more people. And so uh, just from that initial experience, and then when I moved back to Kansas City, ended up working at St. Paul School of Theology as the registrar and really coordinating the academic um, a United services. Methodist school. It is a United Methodist school. So that adds another layer it of does. richness and texture. another layer. And um, I just... I, I love Christian education, but that aspect of theological education. So I know I have a personal um, just desire to help form ministers for service so that they can prepare to be ready. Because I, I recall that when I shared with Dr. Hicks uh, my my call, the call of my life, as in that conversation, he said, okay, a call to preach means a call to preparation. Where are you going? It, it wasn't a question. Uh, I was going to somebody's seminary. Now, the question sure. was which seminary? Sure. And so um, I know that from those formative um, experiences as a fledgling minister in Metropolitan in Washington, D.C., through seminary, through serving two churches in, in Richmond, Virginia, then moving back to Kansas City and now being here, um, it's important to give space um, not just for Christian education for lay people, but also for ministers, and that's that's near and dear to my heart, making sure that they have the tools to adequately preach and teach the gospel. You have background with Baptist, you have background with Presbyterian, mm -hmm. you have background with United Methodist. Uh, one of the issues uh, surrounding Christendom and young adults today, or younger people, uh, has to do with uh, the lack of, of appreciation or, or, in the minds of some people, the, the lack of need for denominationalism within mm -hmm. Christianity. Uh, many of our churches are dismissing uh, their denominational uh, uh, affiliations. Uh, they're taking Baptist off the door. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Rose Hill Church, for example, was Rose Hill Baptist Church. Mm -hmm. It's now just Rose Hill Church. Star Hill mm -hmm. was Star Hill Baptist Church. Now it's just Star Hill Church. I believe in autonomy, so every church can do what right. it likes. But as someone who has had a background of experience with various denominations and seeing what's going on with regard to attitudes about denominationalism, what are your thoughts with regard to denomination and its place in our Christian work? Well, I think the, the question is, it's not just about what's a name and what's in a name. Um, 
there there are two issues at 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 hand here. First of all, I think a lot of churches are trying to find ways to rebrand themselves in ways that are not offensive to young people or to seekers. And sometimes people are caught up um, with denomination in a negative way. And so removing that out of your name for some may just be I'll be honest, a, a marketing strategy. Um, a, a church right down the street from where my parents live in Kansas City, a traditional Southern Baptist church, First Baptist church, they were, of Raytown. Now they changed their name to Cross Point or Cross something. And they're still uh, basically the first Baptist church of that community. And that caused some, and, and, and that's a white Southern Baptist affiliated mm-hmm. denomination. Mm-hmm. And that caused some people who had been there for 50 years. Cause, cause one couple lives next door to my parents. They've been there for 50 years and, and they mentioned, well, I don't know why we had to change the name. And so I know in that instance, um, they still are affiliated with the same denomination. <laughs> they still have the same history they had, mm-hmm. but for them, trying to tamp down the denominational piece is more about attracting more people. So that's that's one instance. So is this just a marketing strategy? But is it necessary to tamp down denomination in order to attract people? If, if we believe a certain way, uh, if, if we believe certain things, if, if, if we believe that baptism uh, must be in response to a profession of faith, if we believe that there are two ordinances of the church, mm-hmm. and that is baptism and the Lord's Supper, if we believe in the primacy of Scripture as uh, the, the the highest revelation of God's will to us, then why do we have to tamp that down in order to attract people to our churches? Well, I don't believe we have to tamp it down, and I'm proud of our Baptist heritage uh, here at Shiloh, but but more generally, and what it means to be a Baptist versus what it means to be Presbyterian or United Methodist. So for me, it, it would never be a question of, of taking that out of our name because that means something, and it and it comes with it a particular history, especially missionary Baptists, and even in the life of Shiloh. Absolutely. You know, um, what missionary Baptists meant. I'm glad you meant, mentioned that, yes. Um, versus just Baptist, Baptist yes. but missionary Baptist, meaning that outreach effort. And even this church was started by missionaries from Virginia. That is correct. But I think um, in the minds of some local churches and even some denominational thrust, they like the idea of people necessarily not identifying with denomination, but just identifying with Christ through a particular um, assembly. Now, for me... Uh, I see why people find that troubling. Um, I, I do because what we believe makes us who we are. Yes. And so when you take the name Baptist off of the, the, the name of the church, is is that just the marketing ploy or are you saying now we do not believe what it is that makes Baptist Baptist? And so now we are we are disassociating ourselves what it means to be Baptist and that long history going all the way back uh, to John the Baptist and and that that long line of, of history of what Baptists did and who Baptists were, in particular in the life of the African-American community in this country. Yes. Um, the, what, the oldest uh, black Baptist church, I believe in being in Savannah, Georgia, uh, 
independent Baptist. So, so for me, I, I do think it's 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 problematic um, because the autonomy of being Baptist is something that I appreciate. But I see where other churches and some other denominational thrusts are going forward. And for whatever reason, people are trying to tamp that down. Again, because I think um, church leaders believe that the whole idea of denomination for some people is just problematic. You know, this thing that, that I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Yeah. You know, that, 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 that I don't have to go to a particular church or identify with a particular church, that I can just believe what I believe. And I think, I wonder in some ways is that um, capitalizing on that idea. But for those who are Christians and believers, we know that the the assembly of the saints is something important. When you look at scripture, in particular in Acts, after the birth of the church, uh, as is narrated in Acts, there was something special about the assembly of the saints. Yes. And, and I just find it problematic, this idea of, we're Baptists, but we're going to distance ourselves from what it means to be Baptist. Because if that's the case, just be an independent church. Don't be Baptist at all. It, it, <laughs> or, or some are non-denominational. I think part of, part of the problem stems from the fact that we as Baptists have done a poor job of teaching. And I bring this mm -hmm. up in your role as a Christian education minister. We've done a, a poor job of teaching Baptist doctrine, mm -hmm. uh, uh, of, of even teaching the diversity that exists within Baptist doctrine. Uh, Baptist Training Union, as it mm -hmm. was called when, when I was born, and even as a small child, <laughs> when it was called <laughs> Baptist Young People's yes, Union, BYPU. Yes. Uh, in most of our churches, I would say in 95, 96% of our churches, no longer exists. And when it did exist, it was a poor... Uh, uh, tool of actually teaching Baptist doctrine. It, it was more or less a nighttime Sunday, Sunday school. school. Mm -hmm. and, and we did not deal with the doctrinal issues of the church. So we have raised multiple generations of people within our churches uh, without actually, with by telling them that they are Baptist, without telling them what it means, what it means to, to be, be Baptist. a Baptist. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm just wondering if, if we have let it go so far now that it would be very, very difficult to harness that and bring that back in uh, and and affirm uh, that that we are not just Christians, but that we are Christians of the Baptist denomination. I think I agree. We need to do a better job um, of explaining what it means to be Baptist and why that is distinctive, and for me, why it's important. One of the things that we know as Baptists we stand on is the the primacy of the Word of God. You know that's key. And what bothers me is that we have a whole bunch of folks who have a tangential relationship with the word, Absolutely. you know, but they don't really know the word. Right. You know, um, we say we're people of the book. Yes. But yet we don't know much about the book. Now, we can quote the 23rd Psalm because we've heard it since we were children. There's certain scriptures we know. There are certain overarching stories we know. But many times we have not even delved into that for ourselves. Yes. So we know the story of Abraham leaving Ur and going and God calling him out. But beyond that, the, the, the general uh, big things, we don't closely read what the text says. And in doing so, I think we we miss out on the rich 
flavor and texture that is in the book. So that's one of the things with being Baptist. You know, we people of the book. But when I look at my my background and interaction with Presbyterians, with uh, UCC, that's United Church of Christ, with um, Methodists, when I look at our, our Baptist background, we don't know as much about the Bible, about biblical history, about the historical context yes. of how the Bible has come come um, to fruition and how we got Not it. only and do so, we not know, we don't want to know. Right. We don't want to know, know how we got our canon. And, 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 and many of us who do know how the canon came about are shy about sharing that with others for fear that that it's like taking the veil away and finding out that the Wizard of Oz is just a man <laughs> hiding behind a, a, a booth somewhere. And and we do a disservice to people because then uh, they uh, feel like they've missed out on some truth. Yes. <laughs> and so when they hear this somewhere else in another denomination, in an independent church or in another place, they're like, well, you know... I didn't get the true word. I, right. I didn't get true information. So therefore, I have to go someplace else yes. to get information. When I'm like, no, people here, that, that's the benefit of a seminary education. Yes. What you learn, you ought to be able to share. And you ought to be able to share it in a way that lovingly lifts up the, the supremacy of God and, and, and who Christ is and, and the spirit and, 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 and talks about that and lifts that, lifts that up, but at the same time, making sure that people understand the historical context of where scripture comes from because when you understand that then I believe you actually have a uh, a richer understanding of 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 the Bible period and so I, I think part of my job in Christian education is one to help people be interested in the Bible that mm -hmm. we say mm -hmm. that we believe in and we know about but also take that interest from being a a uh, infantile, if I can use that yeah, terminology, um, infantile engagement to an engagement that is reasoned, that is well thought through, but actually explain some things that I believe people have always had the question so that people don't have this idea of why am I not getting a full story? Right. If infantile is too strong a word, certainly we have a passive relationship passive with, 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 with the word. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we're too comfortable with a passive, indifferent relationship. So much, one of the great frustrations that I've had, and I've been doing this now for 36 years, uh, preaching and pastoring, uh, one of the frustrations that I have is that we bring so much other stuff mm -hmm. into our religious experience that we allow to have priority over the word of God. We quote hymns quicker than we quote scripture. Yeah. We quote bumper stickers quicker than we quote scripture. We listen to what XYZ says on the radio and it sounds profound and tickles our ears. And we lift that up over a, a, a deeply rooted fundamental knowledge of the word of God. And, and finding a way to get beyond that and giving people uh, uh, the idea that they need to hunger more mm -hmm. for the word of God. That's a challenging thing. <laughs> it's the ultimate challenge. Um, and I believe that people are not as equipped as they could be 
to deal with just what life brings them because they aren't engaging um, with scripture in a way that is life sustaining. Um, I just had the conversation the other day uh, with one of our church members who has been taking seminary uh, classes and, and uh, she talked about how she's taken a class in biblical history, basically how the canon came about and how exciting it is for her. And uh, one of the things I think we talked about is, is she said, now that I know the background of what's going on, when I read a text, it just it, it comes alive in a way right. that it didn't come alive before. Right. Because now I see the, the 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 backstory, so to speak. And not only that, I believe that when we understand the historical context of where um, the things that we read come from in Scripture, then we can marry it with our current historical context and see how things, as much as things change, they also stay the same. When, when we're looking at um, the imperialistic dictators and conquerors in the Medo-Persian Empire and, and looking at who they were and, and how they uh, conducted themselves, it's amazing how then we look at what's going on today in our political landscape right. and how similar that is right. to what's going on with our presidential leadership. Yeah. With the oligarchies of other countries and areas, what's going on in Russia, what's going on in China and other places, this idea that you just had one person that could make these decisions for everyone. And so when you look at the context, to me, it only makes our current situation, um, it, it, it just it just brings a light. It, it's a lamp to, to what we're dealing with even right now, which for those of us who are of faith and believing that God is ultimately in control of all of history, that God is yet in control even now. And so um, to me, it just gives a richness to, to, to scripture in a way that um, we don't have if you just read this one um, dimensional, really fundamentalist way of looking at, at, at scripture. Uh, uh, it, it just brings a richness to it. So part of what I believe my job is to help people better understand um, scripture. How do you bridge the gap as a Christian educator uh, in a traditional African-American church? How do you bridge the gap between uh, the basic uh, mother wit theology, Sunday school theology, some of us call it, uh, you just refer to it as fundamentalist theology. How, how do we bring the deeper theological import of Scripture mm -hmm. into the traditional church setting uh, through the opportunities that we have uh, to, to engage in Christian education within our church settings. For most of us, uh, Christian education is Sunday school uh, on Sunday morning. Uh, midweek Bible study during the week, a vacation Bible school in the summer, and perhaps one or two other opportunities throughout the year. Uh, but we don't have, at least most of our churches, don't have a consistent uh, uh, theological uh, opportunity uh, or, or a consistent opportunity to convey theology Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and invoke actual theological thought mm -hmm. into the church situation. 
what's your assessment of where we are as not not just as Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church, but as the African American traditional Baptist Church? What's your assessment of where we are with regard to Christian education? Well, I I think great gains have been made, but I think there's a lot more work to be done. Uh, first of all, if we just consider the radical nation of the gospel and look at who Jesus was, that right there gives us so much room for thought and really fodder to fire this idea of when looking at Thrive this year for our, our, our thematic thrust for Shiloh, transformative thinking. If, if we just do a close reading of who Jesus was and how radical Jesus was in his time, then that automatically speaks to us that if we are those who call ourselves by the name of Jesus Christ, Christians, then we too have to take up that mantle of social justice and that radical nature. And so I believe the space that there is so much work to be done is to help people understand that just about every decision we make is a theological one, whether we realize it or not. First of all, I think people are are put off or a little intimidated by the idea of theology. Mm -hmm. Theology is God talk. Yes. That's what it means, literally, yeah. our musings and our thought Bishop about Humphrey's who God used is. used to say it simply means thinking about God. Thinking about God. That's yes. theology. Yes. And so, first of all, I think we need to get our nomenclature right to help people understand you're, you are a theologian. Already, it's not just what you do, what I do. You are a theologian. So how do we, as Christian educators, as pastors, as preachers, as teachers, help people to then see themselves in in the trajectory of the radical uh uh, assignment of, of, of carrying the gospel and explaining that out, mm -hmm. what it means. Mm -hmm. And so um, when you talk about the challenge of, of how do we do that, how do we get people to care? First of all, we have to make sure that they understand how it applies to their daily lives. That literally everything we do in one way or another is a theological act. Uh, what we do with our money, <laughs> right. you know, ha ha how we vote. What, who we choose to vote for, those are all radical the, theological acts because either we're going to live our lives in a way that seek to bring about the kingdom of God, a kingdom where justice is, is rolls uh, like water. Is, is that what it says? Uh, Amos. A Amos, rolls like water. Righteousness um, as an ever-flowing stream. Righteousness as an ever-flowing stream. So if we're talking about bringing about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of God, because some people, some, some, some theologians, don't like the overly masculinist language of that, but even the kingdom of God, the family of God, bringing that about, then how does that play out in our everyday life? So some people don't care about theology because they don't understand how everything that they do in life actually is, is a theological moment. Right. And what do you say to the person who says, well, I like football, but I don't have to coach football in order to enjoy football. I don't have to have the knowledge of a coach in order to enjoy football. I, I enjoy going to church, and I want to know that I'm going to heaven when I die. But I don't need to know all of that theological stuff. But there's a lot of living to be done before we get to heaven. Correct? Yes. I mean, we don't profess Christ and expect that the very next day we're going to be dead and buried in our graves. And so is there not a lot of living that we have to, to make it through until we get to the other side? Well, the idea of, of thinking theologically and seeing how everything in our lives ought be centered towards the, 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 the presence of God in our lives, well, then 
the 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 radical nature of the gospel and the radical nature of scripture is that this helps us to make it through the living until we get to the other side. Um, I don't want to just profess Christ and know that I'm going to go to heaven, but I don't have the kind of access to adequate health care so that I could live a life that's all right, that I have access to preventative care so that I'm able to make it through however many years I have. I want to know that my children and my nieces and my nephews and my grandchildren, if the Lord bless us with some, will have access to certain things. No time soon. No time soon. Amen. (laughs) But the point is, there's a lot of living. And so fine, you know, you have people to say, I just want to go to church and and, and I want to have a good time when I'm at church. Church, but I don't have to know all that stuff. But what you don't realize is that you're already wrestling with all that stuff. Yes. And having a deeper understanding of the Word of God and of the, the Spirit of God can actually help you, uh, as one of my friends a long time ago said, war without fear. You know, live life without fear because huh, life can be something. Yes, it can. Life is something. Yes. Every day there's something new to deal with. And and we're missing out on, on how uh, the gospel can radically rearrange lives and social structures and, and, and governments and people so that we have access to the kingdom or the kingdom of God. That's what, you know, Jesus' first sermon uh, after he comes out of the wilderness, he goes and he reads the scroll of Isaiah. And what does he say? The spirit of the Lord is up on me. Yes. And and he talks about what? Coming to, to, to preach. Sit uh, at liberty those who are captive. Sit at liberty those who are captive to to open up blinded eyes, yes. to, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Yes. Talking about a radical restructuring. There's a whole bunch of stuff going on in the world that needs to be restructured. And, and as a Christian, I believe that the gospel is the core of that restructuring. Well, how do you know how the restructuring can occur? The opportunities for changing our environment if you don't have access to the gospel, to the word. And the only way you get that is you don't get that on a Sunday morning. Right. Because Sunday morning is about inspiration. Sunday morning helps fill you up so then you can go back out into the world on a Monday right. and, 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 and live that week until you come back, particularly in the African-American community where, where church was the one place where we didn't have to deal with all the other stuff, the, 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 the racist uh, things that were being hurled our way, the oppressive structures. Church was the one place where we can come and be ourselves and be with ourselves yes. and know that God would meet us there and lift us up. So, so that Sunday morning experience, uh, that worship experience is about uplift. But the, the, but the Christian education experience, what might happen on a Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday or Friday, is about giving you the tools that when you go out into the world, you've now developed some strategies based on some knowledge that you've had access to through study that can help you then uh, make it through the week. So you have some inspiration and some and some education and some information. And so Christian education is very much about how do we help people navigate the day in and day out of what it means to live out our faith as we deal with all the other things that we have to navigate in the world. And Christian education, that, that's the core of, of what it is. As a Christian educator, what is your preferred translation of the Bible? <laughs> um, my preferred translation for study is the New Revised Standard Version, but 
I I have come to, you know this, uh, really appreciate other versions, particularly I, I love Peterson's message because I think he gets over this, the, the vernacular of the way scripture would have sounded to the people who it was written for. And so um, I appreciate the message, but when I'm studying and preparing to preach and teach, uh, usually I'll look at the original language, particularly Hebrew, because my Hebrew is much better than my Greek. I, I, I will look at something in the original language okay. before I translate. That, for those who are listening, to, that was an humble brag that she no, can actually wasn't. read Hebrew <laughs> and Greek because some of us, namely the person who's talking, <laughs> can't do that. You look at the original language. Keep going. Well, yeah. I... I, I try to look at the original language um, as well as my uh, language skills will allow me to do so because uh, translation in many ways can betray the authentic or mm -hmm. the original intent of the text. Mm -hmm. But even with that, uh, finding a good, the New Revised Standard Version uh, is, is, is my go-to for uh, English translation. But there's some other ones out there that are uh, good as well. What do you say to the person who, who says, I want the real Bible. I want the King James Version. I want that that Bible was good enough for my grandmother and my grandfather. And, and it's, it, it's the Bible that I was raised up with. And I don't need one of these new translations. Well, as a Christian educator, what's your response <laughs> to that? I would say that I love the King James Version for liturgy. Um, the Lord's Prayer in the King James Version is one of the most be beautiful poetic uh, uh, expressions of, of that. But we have to understand the context where the King James Version comes out of. First of all, it's the Bible that Grandmama had because that's the only Bible Grandmama had. <laughs> and when we know better, you do better. And so while the King James is beautiful for devotional purposes, for liturgy, if you really want to learn and get to the crux of what's going on in that text, you need something other than the King James Version. And of course we like it. It's Shakespearean English. I mean, it comes out of that kind of time period of that kind of writing. So it sounds beautiful, but that cannot be your primary uh, text for studying. Not if you really want to know something and want to learn something, mm -hmm. because the language gets in the way. Not only does the language get in the way, but in many places it's just plain wrong. Well, <laughs> yes. Uh, we now know that, first of all, when you talk about the real Bible, I don't... I don't know that any of us have the, there is no such thing as, as the as real the original Bible. text because even the ones that that we read and study from, even if you're looking at it in the original Hebrew and the original Greek, um, the idea of it being original, well, we don't know where the first copies were. Um, nobody does. That is correct. Um, so that's kind of a, a, a misnomer. Um, but for for study purposes, yes. The, the, the manuscripts that the King James Version were, uh, that, that the King James was translated from are, are, are much younger than the ones that we had access to for the New Revised Standard Version or the Revised Standard Version the new, and then the New Revised Standard Version. So they're older manuscripts. Now, for a lot of people, when I teach uh teach this in, in, in an education setting, I, I talk about the idea of um, you can use a game of telephone. 
You know, if you play, you start in one corner and go all the way around the room and you whisper into somebody's right. ear a phrase. And it's only one or two people down the circle that the original phrase has been changed, corrupted, because someone didn't hear it correctly, because they didn't understand one of the words that was used. And by the time you get all the way around to the end, uh, it could be completely different. And so the idea is that the person who originally heard the, the, the message in the telephone game is much closer to the truth than the 22nd person who heard it. Absolutely. It's the same way with, with, with translations and with manuscripts. With the King James Version, you have a manuscript that might have been the equivalent of the 22nd hearing in the telephone game, where, as with the, the, the manuscripts that were used for the New Revised version, maybe that was the eighth person or the fifth person. So it's much closer to whatever the original idea or intent of, of, of uh, a particular uh, biblical book was. So while King James sounds good, uh, in many cases, it's just plain wrong. And the translation is totally off. Um, and uh, when you know better, when you have access to better information, one ought want to be able to use the better information. So uh, get another version for study. <laughs> In the time that we have left, um, Shiloh is a church that has historically uh, seen itself as playing a role in holistic ministry and social justice. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly that was uh, the lifeblood of this church during the time that Charles Smith pastored this church, and we have tried to continue that tradition. What do you see the role of Christian education being in helping us to identify uh, social justice issues and speak to those, speaking truth to power? First of all, the idea of Christian education really is about discipleship um, in many ways, helping people understand what it means to be disciples. Of, of Christ. And from an education perspective, all you have to do is look at um, the New Testament, how Jesus interacted with people and, and the issues and the things that were of the forefront of, of Christ. And he, ha he was justice minded. He was not just heavenly bound, but on the way he was justice minded. And so when we look at the way that Jesus dealt with the poor, dealt with the outcasts, dealt with women, dealt with those who were cer ceremoniously or religiously considered unclean, how he touched them anyway, how he dealt with them anyway, the way that he used his knowledge of scripture to uphold a different way of, of relating to people. That's the task of Christian education. And so when you look at the Gospels, you see a justice-loving Jesus. And so if we're going to be Christians— and we say that we proclaim Jesus as Christ, then we also have to be about justice-loving activities. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the task of Christian education is to lift up those issues 
of how Jesus spoke truth to power. Mm-hmm. And that we have to then be empowered to do the same. And the education process is to help teach our people so then they can turn around and do the same thing. Speak truth to power. Call out the, the ills of society. Call out the spaces and the places where people are being downtrodden, where people are being oppressed. And help people to feel empowered to then go and do something about those oppressions that we meet every day. And about not just feeding the hungry and clothing the naked, but transforming people's minds so that they understand that we, we affirm, we believe that, that uh, it is God's intent that all should have access to food, to shelter, to clothing, to uh, a right to something like, like, like healthcare. And, and, and I know that seems like a very contemporary debate, but, but is that not what Jesus would do when he would touch and Absolutely. heal somebody? No you question. know, the woman with the issue of blood, she touched him. But, but, but um, I, what comes to mind now is the passage where the woman uh, comes to Jesus because her daughter is being severely uh, plagued with, with uh, demonic spirits. And it seems like Jesus is going to put her off and she's persistent. She's like, no. And he says, you know, is it right to throw uh, 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 crumbs, crumbs, you know, to the dogs, to the dogs. something like yes. that, and 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 she's like, yes, it is. You know, you know, we deserve crumbs too. We we should have access to. And Jesus is like, you're right. And so, I believe that all of what we do, preaching and teaching, points to the the justice leaning of Christ, and the, really the justice leaning of who God is. And so. That's the number one thing we should be about. You know, it's not just enough to get folks soul saved. Then we have to go and help people to save other people. And right. salvation is not just about a spiritually spiritually getting to another worldly place. It's about living saved and free and liberated here. Right. And that's the social justice aspect of prison education. Right. Until everyone is free and liberated. Until everyone's chains have fallen off. Until every person's eyes have been opened. Yes. Until the structures that seek to, de- to dehumanize and to make people less less than human until those things are broken up and torn down our work will continue yes and that's the the justice aspect yeah. we have to go and do likewise we we have to have the same mindset that was in Christ uh, not talking about the Christ hymn that, that, that Pauline theology looks to about taking off of um, divinity and clothing and flesh but the mindset of we gonna get in the midst of the struggle mm-hmm. um b- because is that not what god did it is god gets in the midst of the struggle and we have to stop looking at these things as being mutually exclusive from uh the worship experience from the sunday school experience from mm-hmm. from the various ministry experiences the music ministry experience or the usher experience or any of the other things that go to make up the traditional church. They're not mutually exclusive no, things. All of all them bleed mm-hmm. one into the other and should all lead us to a single focal point where we are concerned about being the body of Christ. Yes, and, and I think you you make me think of an a important point in, is that Christian education is not just Bible study. 
It's the idea that everything that we do in the church is harnessing every opportunity, whether it be music, whether it be the arts, whether it be media ministry or anything that's out there, harnessing those things in the service of the gospel, the radical gospel. And if we do that, so Christian education pervades every little nook and cranny of the church and what it means to be church. Um, it, it, it's all Christian education. All of it, you, you you can't get away from it. That's just what it is, which is why I love w- what I do, because it deals with every aspect of the of the life of the church. Reverend Demetria Lavelle Jones Smith, my whole name, <laughs> Minister of Christian Education for the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. Thank you for taking the time to be with us on the Thrive Podcast today. We will have you back again soon. Thank you all for listening and or viewing and invite others to do so as well. Amen. Thank have a good you for day. having me.